Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, The Centrist Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tobias Elwood, the Member of Parliament for Bournemouth East since 2005, former Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for the Middle East and North Africa from 2014 to 2017, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Africa from 2016 to 2017, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Defence, Veterans, Reserves and Personnel from 2017 to 2019, and the current Chair of the the Defence Select Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Tobias. Nice to see you. It's great to have you on. Now, um, the first question that I'd like to ask is regarding Brexit. Um, In your opinion, how has Brexit gone for the economy? And how do you think we can improve the situation? Well, that is the big question, (laughs) uh, which I think is is now being, being discussed a little more widely uh after i you know put forward my my own thoughts on this uh, let's step back and just confirm perhaps where the party indeed the country i think wants to be it, it is a very potent subject there's no doubt about it it's uh it divided the country at the time this whole issue a lot of people weren't sure which way but you ended up having to be on one side of the argument or another we've left the eu the referendum result must be honoured. And I think that's the majority of where Britain would like to be. There's no appetite whatsoever to, uh, you know, to revisit any, any form of vote. There is a, a, obviously a caucus that would like to perhaps go there. I'm certainly not one of them. Politically, we have gained distance from the EU. And I think that's to be, uh, to be welcomed. I mean, it was turning beyond the original common market um, thesis that certainly Margaret Thatcher supported. She came out with the idea of the single market itself, and it was moving into the political sphere. We have long been, for many centuries, an independent nation where we make our political judgments ourselves. If anything, we like to uh, uh, be an exemplar, perhaps, as to how uh, we should do things. We're called the mother of all parliament for that reason. And I think what we saw over uh, time is is the EU get ahead of itself uh, on the politics side. And it, it was shown to be a fair weather organisation in the sense that when times were going well, clearly the EU was able to function. But when we had the financial crisis or even Greece went through its own economic troubles, um, the, it couldn't provide the solutions that were required. The migrant issue was another one to do with from Syria and Turkey. Um, they weren't able to come out with these difficult answers. And even to do with Ukraine now as well, that there is, um, it's difficult to get a collective decision. Therefore, go back as to what is useful to both Britain and indeed to, to European countries is having that basis of a simple trading platform that we can then participate. And if you know, half of our goods and services roughly are, are um, certainly more of our services are heading in towards Europe, then having a relationship with Europe is something that, you know, all governments have wanted to do, including, including this one. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long answer, but I do hope it makes it very, very clear that when we're looking 
at Brexit, there's no question mark at all of you know uh, somehow uh, going backwards. We we need to go forwards uh, for what's best for Britain. I actually don't like it when the terms sort of you know Brexiteer or Remainer are used in this this way. I think it's actually divisive and it's it's almost too simplistic. The the majority of Britons that I speak to, my constituency and indeed in the party, want to move into a sort of a post Brexit environment. We have left the EU, but how can we best then leverage economically what our position is? And that, I think, is the question which now is is, is quite rightly being looked at. The OBR have come out uh, with statistics that say on the current modelling, um, uh, it's affecting our, our economy by 4% GDP. Now, when you add that to uh, the cost of living crisis, to uh, the pandemic and so forth, then it simply is, is is worth looking at. And it's interesting seeing some of the comments from right across the spectrum to say, hmm, that's interesting. You know, maybe we could get a better deal out of Brexit without unpicking the very critical foundations of what Brexit was all about, which is that political distance. Mm-hmm. In regards to the... Um Northern Ireland Protocol, of course, this is um, an issue that has caused a great deal of consternation between both the um, UK and the EU. The government is seeking to um, propose a a way to alter the protocol um, at the moment. Do you think that this is a necessary step in terms of making the most economically of Brexit in in terms of reducing the amount of paperwork, and it's a significant amount of paperwork, um, that is needed when goods are crossing from the UK to Northern Ireland? Or do you think that the way that this is being um, done is perhaps not the most effective way to deal with the issue? Yeah, again, it's a a very, very sensitive subject. I served in Northern Ireland. I remember the border that was there uh, the removal of that border was a phenomenal change for the island of, of, of Ireland, so Northern Ireland and, and Ireland itself. And until you've actually lived there or, or do business there, you don't really appreciate how the north-south trade is so critical to uh, uh, you know to stability, to you know, to security, and to uh, prosperity uh, as well. Of course, as soon as we chose to go down the Brexit route, it did mean that we had a land border with the EU, uh, unlike the sea border that we have where things are a little bit more easier to sort of control and understand and check and so forth. And that was always going to be a challenge as to how this works. You know, how does trade between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland take place? Trade between Northern Ireland and um, Ireland itself take place? And then goods going in from Great Britain, mainland, across the Northern Ireland, and then in. And this concept that's now been put forward of green and red zones is not a stone's throw, I think, from where the EU itself wanted to to go. Um, There's been a frustration expressed by government that we've not been able to land a workable, practical solution. And so they perhaps... uh, uh, you know, gone to uh, the, the, this this extra measure now of of you know threatening to put in legislation. It's all part, I think, of a wider tactic. I think by government, we know that the legislation itself will take many many months, potentially you know more than a year to get through. 
will it nudge the system into and uh, you know and prompt greater negotiations? You know, we have yet to see. I, I, my my concern, if I have any, is you know, I, what I don't want to see is it trigger a um, greater uh, fallout with the EU that could lead to the British economy being affected further by additional tariffs being put in place to punish us. Nor, of course, and I say this as a dual national, um, any fallout with the United States as well. It's important that we keep the US close to us in explaining what we're doing as we seek a long-term solution um, to the, uh, the, the resolving the, northern, the differences in uh, opinion over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you mentioned um, the United States that one of the um, potential uh, gains as much uh, trumpeted uh, from Brexit was a potential uh, deal between a free trade deal between Britain and the United States. Now, of course, that hasn't happened uh, yet, and there may be some difficulties with it ever happening because of the way that um, the American system works and there have been some sort of discussions about whether there could be um, free trade arrangements with individual states which obviously has all sorts of um, difficulties of its own how important do you think it would be to have a um, free trading arrangement between the UK and the US and do you worry that there could be some potential damage as some people have argued on um, the quality of products that are coming from the US to the UK if such an agreement was made? Yeah, well, the the purpose of the agreement is that you weed out all those difficulties, that you actually confirm um, what the basis are for any discrepancies in whether it's to do with production of chicken or um, other use of chemicals and so forth. Uh, The the purpose is, is that overall there's a benefit uh, to both sides in you providing an international trade agreement. Now, it is tough with the United States because, of course, you're not just dealing with perhaps one country. It's, it's more appropriate to think of you're dealing with, you know, 50 smaller countries that are all vying for their own uh, position. And, and it's, uh, uh, having spent a lot of time in the States, it, it, they are very powerful lobbies there. You know, we're backing the various farmers in, in, in the South and, you know, the industries and so forth to make sure uh, that they get the best possible deal uh, that they can. But ultimately, uh, the United States is our closest uh, security ally, one of our very biggest individual trading partners, and there's no doubt about it, and uh, uh, an important friend. And it is perhaps surprising that we've not struck a, a trade deal, but it, you touch on the, the challenges. There are some deep technical issues that need to, to be overcome. And it requires, I think, an, an attitude and a, 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 you know, an intention to lean into this. Um, and, uh, but certainly, you, you, the fact that you raise it shows that you know, if we can't continue uh, making sure that we uh, resolve the Northern Ireland Protocol issues, um, there, would be, uh, there could be an, a knock-on delay, potentially, uh, with a, a deal with the United States. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um- one other area that, of course, in relation to um, trade, particularly um, with uh, the EU and the rest of the world that has been affected recently, has been obviously um, the trade coming out of um, Ukraine due to the, the Russian invasion. And, and, and nations, particularly in Africa, uh, have been affected by the inability to get wheat and grain um, from Ukraine, which they would um, normally quite heavily 
rely on. This, of course, has, has, has had a, a, a knock-on um, effect in um, the West as well, not just in terms of um, goods, but also the costs of them. How long do you think we're going to be living with the economic shock that's been caused by the invasion? And how long do you think it will be until things in, in, in relation to that stabilise? Do you think it will be simply a matter of when the war ends? Or do you think there's going to become a point when it's more factored into how um, the market deals with issues like um, wheat and things like that? So it's worth stressing the important role Britain has uh, uh, illustrated in stepping forward beyond, beyond other countries mm -hmm. in supporting uh, Ukraine itself. It's the point I raised yesterday. Had everybody made the same commitment that Britain has done militarily, I suspect Russia would have been flushed out of mainland Ukraine already. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. And what we're seeing in Ukraine um, is a, a question mark, firstly, for NATO. The fact that there's a fire in Ukraine right on the doorstep of NATO, but NATO not formally wishing to put it out. There may be longer-term security, uh, security consequences for NATO itself as the threat spreads. If Putin is able to illustrate any form of success back to his own people, he survives. And don't forget, there's a drumbeat of him expanding you know, his strategy of Georgia, then uh, the Crimea, then Donbass now expanding outwards. And my concern is um, that actually if he concludes his efforts in the Donbass region, where he's now starting to make gains, he will move west and actually take the port of Odessa. And you touched on the importance of grain. We're now seeing that even though the war is all the way across in Eastern Europe, the ramifications are enormous across the world. Now, perhaps if we'd better appreciated the fact that Ukraine is the breadbasket, not just to Europe, but beyond, um, maybe then uh, we would have been more inclined to put in a division, uh, in a NATO division in, to prevent the invasion in the first place, because oil and gas prices are going up because of disruption to supplies. Um, and uh, the pressure you know, to, to move away from Russian supply. Grain prices have gone up 60% since January. So that's actually impacting on the cost of living crisis here in the UK. So all these factors, and then of course, there's another industrial aspect to this as well, that our, our uh, industrial supply chains providing weapon systems to Ukraine uh, are now being tested simply because we're providing so many munitions to support the Ukrainian people, quite rightly. But ultimately, it shows you the global consequences of war in one part of the world, how it ripples out far from there. And we don't have a strategy. We still don't have an answer. Again, I put this to the Defence Secretary yesterday. Let's create a, uh, go to the UN General Assembly and secure uh, a legal top cover to create a humanitarian safe haven around the port of Odessa, linking the territorial waters to international waters, so that grain can uh, can get out from the silos uh, to the, the rest of the world. Uh, if you take countries such as Somalia, 100% of their wheat comes from um, uh, Ukraine. Now, if that's the case, what's going to happen in Somalia when they're not able to feed their own people? Uh, Egypt, for example, 75%. Lebanon, also 75%. There's going to be severe unrest 
uh, in those countries and many other countries across Africa, Asia as well. Not, uh, and, and not to, to, to dismiss the economic impact that it's having, as I touched on here in the UK. There is a uh, logic to us leaning forward to support the protection of Odessa. But at the moment, there's an absence of appetite, an absence of uh, determination to see a solution to provide the answers uh, to the big questions that we face in front of us. What I am seeing is Britain becoming more bolder, you know, more determined. Um, Biden, the United States, is, is less focused on Ukraine because of other domestic distractions and China and so forth. Uh, France and Germany are looking different ways. There's a gap in the market for European leadership, and I'd love Britain to exploit that. What do you think it is that is perhaps, um, as, as, as you might describe it, holding Britain back from perhaps being more involved um, than it could be? Do, do you think that it is perhaps that reluctance of other um, European and international partners to be um, more engaged than they, that they already are with the war in Ukraine? Or, or, or do you think it's something else that is perhaps... Yeah. holding Britain a little bit back from, from being um, even even bolder, as, as you might say. You, know, you look at a couple of times last century where Britain did step forward when perhaps other nations hesitated. I mean, in 1938-1939, there was an absolute reluctance to, to go head-to-head -head, you know, with uh, Nazi Germany. Eventually, we had to go there. It, you have to take the nation with you. You know, when, when uh, Chamberlain came back, from um, the Munich uh, discussions, uh, there was you know, a relief that war had been averted. But of course, we were missing the bigger picture as to where things were going. And I, I really do fear that we've entered a tipping point in European, indeed global security, um, with Russia aligning itself ever further with China um, and both recognizing that it's in their interests, as in the, their regime's interests, to challenge the international rules-based order. If you think about it, international rules-based order, these standards that we have, is all about democracy, transparency, openness, accountability, elections. These are all sort of the things that Putin and President Xi really don't want to go near. So the best way to challenge that is to undermine our international rules-based order. And that's exactly what they're getting more, more uh, confident in doing. They're being more assertive in, uh, I think, interpreting how the world should operate. And authoritarianism, I'm afraid, is on the rise. So there is a, a fear, if we don't uh, rise to the challenge, that our world could splinter into two spheres of competing uh, influence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you, you've, you've, you've touched upon a, a few things there, both um, in China and also in the earlier question relating to um, Africa and, and Asia. And it reminds me of a speech that um, in 1960, then Senator John F. Kennedy gave at the University of Illinois when he expressed that he wanted um, the people of the world to wake up and wonder what the United States was doing rather than what Mr. Khrushchev was doing. And I wonder... Do you think that we are in a better position now in terms of influence in um, Africa and Asia, which Senator, then Senator Kennedy was very concerned about illustrating how um, quite often the United States wasn't is engaging as in much in um, Africa and Asia as it could be? Or do you think that we're in a better position now in terms of the relationship that we have with 
um, Africa and Asia vis-a-vis uh, China, which of course is um, trying to gain much more influence there through the um, Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, I mean, that I think is a, a such a critical question because there are actually two Cold Wars that are blurring, blurring into one. We have uh, one with, with Russia. Clearly, Putin is, is on a, a march to expand his, his, his influence across you know, the Slavic Europe to rekindle uh, that uh, footprint that they had during um, the Soviet era. And then, of course, there's China and what it's doing with its One Belt, One Road program right across Africa, right across Asia as well, on uh, securing deep relationships, financial relationships with dozens of countries, many of them in the Commonwealth, which are then tied to China's thinking long term. And uh, when they get into huge debt, uh, as many of them do, um, they're not going to vote against China if they are on the UN Security Council you know, as, as, as one of the rotating members, if, uh, if you have to stand up to uh, some of China's potential antics. And uh, that means, you know, China has essentially neutralized the ability of the UN Security Council to operate. And we are seeing ourselves, with all our friendships across Africa, being nudged out of favored nation status, if you like, from a security, for development, from a governance perspective, a great example of this is Kenya, where we provided all the support to Kenya state media. We've now, BBC World has lost that contract now because China has offered it for free. And China is also building a new railway system you know, across Kenya. That was agreed using Chinese law, not even Kenyan law. So they're bringing in Chinese workers to actually do the building as well. Not even, so there's very little benefit, in fact, for Kenya. But because Kenya needs this infrastructure program, then they sign up to it. And that's repeated right across the board. And this is the perhaps the danger that the West has become too complacent. Uh, Fukuyama wrote his end of history statements, you know, in uh, uh, his, his big uh, uh, assessment to say, that's it, after the Cold War ended. Um, we found a model that everybody can then agree on. Well, clearly not. Uh, China has looked carefully at the fall of the Soviet Union recognized its enormous economic potential, but kept, designed its own model of, of control. And we now see uh, Putin himself uh, wanting to take Russia in a different direction too. So we are at a period of inflection here. What we do over the next few months, indeed perhaps a couple of years, will actually determine how the next few decades play out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'd just like to now um, turn briefly to your role as chair uh, of the Defence Select Committee, because at the moment, um, spending on defence in the UK is currently um, 42.4 billion in cash terms. How effectively do you think that the defence budget is being spent currently? And, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly in, in line with the um, procurement of the um, Ajax tax, which have obviously had um, some issues, and, and there have been some uh, issues, of course, with um, some uh, military defence systems that have been procured. How effectively do you think we're actually spending that money at the moment? Yeah. Well, let's just look at the budget as a whole. Uh, the character of conflict is changing immensely. Um, we are now under threat uh, in perhaps non-conventional military ways. Uh, the, the ultimate high ground is now space. Uh, you dominate that, you dominate everything beneath it, not least communications as well. 
And then, of course, there's the entire cyber world too, which makes it very, very easy. In fact, much more cost-effective to cause harm, you know, by taking out all the traffic lights in London, uh, and the impact to our economy will be will be huge. It's a lot easier to do that than than strike any form of military attack. But to protect us in those two new areas um, requires extra funding. Now we've lent into those areas. That's reflected in the defence review that took place last year. But if the budget stays the same, then uh, that impacts on Army, Air Force and Navy spending. And that's where we are uh, today. Um, so unfortunately, we've seen cuts to 10,000 troops, cuts to tanks, numbers, cuts to airplanes, uh, and indeed ships. And I, what I'd like to see now, given what's happened in Ukraine, is for us to go back to that integrated review, that big study, and actually say the world is becoming more dangerous. We do need to increase defense spending. Ultimately, if you don't aren't able to look after yourselves and indeed encourage others uh, to, to step forward and put out fires, such as in Ukraine, our world will become more dangerous. That will affect global economy. That will cause more um, uh, damage to our own prosperity. Therefore, we need to act now. And that's why I'm calling for an increase in defence spending, as is my committee. The, you touched on Ajax itself. That's a particular procurement programme itself, part of the um, fleet of land warfare capability we have in the British Army. It is a recce vehicle. Uh, the original one was an eight-ton uh, track vehicle called Scimitar. Um, this replacement, Ajax, is 43 tons. And I think it was just over-designed. And the consequence of that is that it's struggling to meet, uh, to pass its, the grade, to uh, clear all the objectives, to you know, get it onto the onto the battlefield. Uh, there's problems with noise and vibrations and so forth. And it's not in a good place, if we're honest. Um, I, I think one of the things that is, is, is interesting, is, as you, you, you point out there, is obviously the um, modernising effect on um, the, the, the military and, and on warfare in terms of, you know, a, a lot of thought is being put into um, cyber warfare and, and obviously um, domination of space. Do you think that that's part of the reason that there has been um, perhaps a reluctance to spend as much on um, more traditional forms of military equipment because people are focusing perhaps a little bit too much on newer forms of um, military engagement and not thinking about the more traditional forms of, of, of it and, and so we're l less willing to um, update uh, some of the more uh, conventional uh, forms of defence. Yeah, I mean... the. Experts, armchair generals, are constantly you know, looking at the battlefield, making judgments as to where the style of conflict would go, will go with ever huge advances in technologies, capabilities, and so forth. But ultimately, if you want to hold ground, seize and hold ground, you need to, phys need to physically be able to do that. And that's what we've seen in Ukraine, is you know, the tank is not obsolete. Used correctly, and it's a formidable uh, piece of firepower used incorrectly and you're doomed to be sitting in one you'll get killed um, and uh, but ultimately there, there was a tilt the assumption that we should really be looking at these high-tech you know um, hybrid wars uh, 
which will be of the future. In fact, uh, just because new capabilities come on board does not mean that old threats will disappear. And that, I think, has been illustrated in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Tobias. It's been uh, great to have you on, and I have one final question. Now, um, something that you have in common uh, with the Prime Minister is that you were both born in New York. So my final question to you is this. If you had to invite any famous New Yorker, so someone either alive or or, or someone um, from the past, over for a dinner party, who would you invite? That's a really good uh, question. Uh, Who would I uh, invite? Um, I'm tempted to say Hillary Clinton, because uh, she was one person who I thought could have been an impressive uh, president, but made some fundamental errors in her campaign. And I think it would be interesting to speak to her and learn from her as about what could could be done done differently. Don't forget, um, the fact that she lost uh, then paved the way, I'm afraid, for uh, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm to then, you know, to, to, to come in. Um, and it, it was, it would be interesting to speak to her and learn about what more, um, you know, what her views would have been and how she would have done things differently. Excellent. Well, I think that that's a, a terrific guest and one who would be very insightful as well. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Tobias. If people uh, want to um, follow what you're doing on, on social media, uh, where should they go to um, follow what you're, what you're up to? Well, I'm delighted to be on, uh, on on your podcast here. Thanks very much indeed. I do a lot of stuff on Twitter. We're just moving into uh, other uh, areas of social media uh, as well. Uh, but there's always Parliament, uh, and that's where the real debates sort of take place. And I suppose my last message is, is particularly as you know, we started off talking about Brexit, let, let's not lose sight of the art of debate. You know, one thing we are proud of is our long history of developing, you know, parliamentary uh, discussion, uh, accountability, and so forth. And with social media particularly, it's very easy to to lurch and play the person, not the ball, if that makes sense. And I hope with so many decisions uh, in front of us, so many challenges ahead of us as well, uh, there is a huge opportunity for Britain to step forward and lead. But if we're going to do that, we also have to not lose sight of the art of debate. The Conservative Party itself is strong because we are a coalition. You know, we have different views and it is the collective of all those views that then appeals to the nation as as a whole. And I hope we don't lose sight of that. Absolutely. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you.